Hi, I'm Valerie Steele, Director and Chief Curator of the Museum at FIT, the most fashionable museum in New York City. Welcome to our Fashion Culture podcast series, featuring lectures and conversations about fashion. If you like what you hear, please share your thoughts on social media using the hashtag #FashionCulture. We love talking about shoes here at the museum, and ballet shoes in particular are really exciting. Um, they're essential instruments of a ballerina's art, enabling her to appear almost superhuman on stage. And in 1929, the Russian dance critic Akim Belinsky wrote about what he called the lofty magic of the ballerina, which he attributed to her ability to stand on her toes. In a ballerina's life, receiving her first pair of point shoes, usually around the age of 12, is a defining moment. Ballet shoes are paradoxical objects. They evoke romance and femininity, as well as strength, discipline, and pain. The smooth surface of the ballet slipper often contrasts the flawed and blistered foot that it encases. Ballet shoes also evoke strong emotions. While many are in awe of the beautiful ballerina and her ability to dance on point, others associate point shoes with pain and defeat. Uh, the ballerina may become obsessive about her shoes. Uh, they really become extensions of her body, and the way she moves is determined by their construction and fit. While point shoes are vital to classical ballet performance, soft ballet slippers are worn during much of a ballerina's warm-up and training. For all of their functional necessity, both styles have played significant roles in the world of fashion. And I began my research uh, in late 17th century France. And this is a time that a lot of elements of classical ballet were becoming codified. The development of dancing corresponds directly to changes in dancers' footwear. Um, so during the late 17th century, both men and women were wearing heels on their shoes. The difference was that men's shoes tended to have low, sturdy heels and also more squared off toes, and women's shoes had higher, narrower heels and pointed toes. And this meant that women were, in general, relegated to more mincing dance steps and therefore overshadowed by men. And we saw this image of Marie Camargo, also referred to as La Camargo, yesterday. And uh, in my research, I came across a couple of sources that said that La Camargo was so successful as a dancer because she was the first to remove the heels from her shoes. But if you look at this painting or really any of the images of La Camargo, you'll see that she is actually wearing fashionable high-heeled shoes. Um, so I eventually traced this myth back to a book on point shoes from the 1970s that a number of other people have since cited. Uh, really, what made La Camargo so successful was that she was the first or one of the first to shorten her skirt. And that meant that she was able to move more freely, but it also meant that people were able to see her feet and really get a sense of her technical prowess. And she was very influential during the 18th century in uh, really showing that women had great dancing ability and beginning to challenge the dominant role of men in ballet. 
And I wanted to include this uh, portrait of Amalia Brugnoli, a great dancer um, from the 1820s, uh, because she is one of a number of dancers at that time that began to uh, work on the idea of standing on toe. And initially, this was not at all dancing on toe. It was more of a technical trick that showed that you could uh, go up on one toe, kind of with your arms uplifted, for a limited amount of time, and then, of course, come back down. Uh, but Brugnoli especially, although she was one of several women who did this, uh, was influential to a very important dancer that we've heard a bit about already, Marie Taglioni. Um, Taglioni wrote in one of her journals that she had gone to see uh, Amalia Brugnoli dance, and she was very impressed by this idea of standing on one's toes, but she also noted that it took a lot of physical effort to do so. The, the physical strain was noticeable. Uh, so Taglioni underwent six months of intense physical training uh, under the um, oversight of her father, who was uh, Filippo Taglioni, the great choreographer. Uh, and he really played to his daughter's strengths. And within that six months' time, she was able to uh, stand on her toes much more naturally and kind of give this light, ethereal look that we still associate with the romantic ballet. Um, Taglioni's technical prowess is even more outstanding when viewed in light of her shoes, uh, which were simply modified versions of the soft slippers worn by her predecessors. Uh, they were heavily darned at the toe, which did allow for a little bit more support. Uh, and the great 20th century ballerina Alicia Markova owned a pair of Taglioni's shoes, and she said that they were like soft kid gloves. In the wake of Taglioni's success, the practice of darning shoes became more common, and uh, the French critic Théophile Gautier wrote about slippers in 1856 that were lined with strong canvas and included strips of cardboard and leather at the toe, so getting a little bit closer to the idea of the modern point shoe. And here we see the great 20th century ballerina Anna Pavlova, who debuted in 1899 to great critical praise. She was initially criticized for being uh, a much thinner and ganglier uh, version of the ballerina than what we had seen before, uh, but she did become extremely successful, and her feet were really revered. She had this especially high arch, which allowed her to be really powerful and expressive, but this also meant that her shoes were more difficult to fit. Uh, so finding the perfect toe shoes was challenging and very expensive, and in 1910, a reporter noted that Pavlova's shoe bill was enormous and said that a man could live well on what she spent on shoes each year. Uh, she, at this time, was buying most of her shoes from an Italian shoemaker, Romeo Nicolini. The problem was that Pavlova did not speak Italian, so communicating with Nicolini was quite difficult. Um, however, in 1907, she began to train with Enrico Cicchetti, the great Italian ballet master, so of course he was able to communicate needs on her behalf. Um, all ballerinas have their own way of breaking in new point shoes, whether it be darning or gluing over the toe box or breaking the shank, and Pavlova was no exception. Um, the difference is that we really don't know what she did to break in her shoes. 
Uh, it remains a bit of a mystery. It seems that she probably pulled out the cardboard and the stiff linen facing that had become common for ballet shoes at this time and replaced them with something of her own device, perhaps uh, some sort of stiffened leather. But as you can see from this example, she's still relying on that heavy darning. Um, however, uh, Pavlova's innovations in the way that she customized her point shoes are often credited as being sort of predecessors to the uh, modern point shoe. Because you'll see that a number of photographs of Pavlova show her standing on this mere sliver of a point. In fact, it is rumored that Pavlova danced on shoes that were actually wider at the toe than average uh, so that she could maintain her exceptional balance. And it's during the late 19th century and into the early 20th century that we begin to see a lot of specialized dance shoe companies come into being, some of which are still around today. Uh, Capizio was founded in 1889 by Salvatore Capizio, and he initially focused on theatrical footwear. Uh, however, he was uh, located very close to the Metropolitan Opera House here in New York, and so a number of dancers began to come to him and ask for shoes. Uh, in 1902, he married the ballerina Angelina Passone, and that really cemented his focus on dance footwear. Uh, this is a pair of duro toe, toe point shoes that's included in the Dance and Fashion exhibition. Uh, this example is from 1941, but the style was patented in 1930, just after the stock market crash. And what uh, sets the duro toe apart is that rather than the uh, satin on the toe of the shoe, he's replaced that with a more durable suede material. And also these shoes were sold at a lower price point, so they were more affordable for the average dancer or um, woman in dance school. And unfortunately, this line has now been discontinued. It's rumored that they tended to make a lot of noise on stage, so they weren't totally ideal. And uh, Freed of London was established in 1929 by Frederick Freed, and today they still supply dance shoes for many prestigious companies, including the English National Ballet and the New York City Ballet. Um, what initially distinguished the Freed shoes was that Frederick Freed used fewer nails in the toes of his shoes, which did help to eliminate the noise of the point shoe on stage. Freed employs a number of highly specialized point shoe makers, who are not really known by name, but by a symbol. One of the maker's symbols, that sort of upside-down triangle on the sole of this shoe. And what I love about this is that dancers, because shoes are so important to them, kind of shop around to find the right maker for their particular foot needs. And so when they find a freed maker that they really like, they will often scratch off this maker's mark so that other dancers don't know who's making their shoes. <laughs> And here we have a pair of shoes from Gaynor Minden, which was a company established in 1993. And I wanted to briefly talk about them because they are pushing the idea of point shoes a bit further. Um, this is a company that bases their point shoes on plastic. So they're basically made in a way similar to athletic shoes. And what this means is that the shoes are much longer lasting, and they're also meant to be better for the feet. So if you go on the Gaynor Minden website, you'll see a number of ballerinas who have sustained injuries saying, now I'm wearing Gaynor Minden point shoes, and my feet are in much better, better physical shape. 
Um, they don't really do custom shoes, but you can, uh, for example, decide on the width of the toe or uh, the certain way that a shank is produced, etc. So there is a little bit of customization to it, but not quite the level of someone like Freed. Um, and although this idea of making point shoes in a more contemporary way has been controversial, uh, the company has been really successful. So now getting into the idea of fashion. Uh, the ballet flat has been an especially prevalent style in the 21st century, but it really originated about two centuries ago. Uh, and this is when hot, soft, heelless slippers were commonly worn as street shoes. Uh, the fashion shoes were made to fit very snugly on the foot, uh, and they also had soles that were cut narrower than the foot, so that it did allow for some flexibility. So in fact, uh, taking the idea of the average street shoe into fashion wasn't the worst idea at this time. These were somewhat good for dancing as a general idea. And then we see ballet slippers become very fashionable again during the World War II era, in part because they were one of few uh, shoe styles that was not rationed in the United States. And I think that Claire McArdle's line of ballet flats uh, with Capizio is probably one of the most famous. Uh, but the story behind this is that uh, McArdle purportedly approached Capizio in the early 40s with a number of the fabrics she was using to uh, make dresses and asked for ballet shoes to match. Um, and her styles, as well as other similar styles, really quickly became fashionable. But I also wanted to point out this wonderful image of Valentina um, in Vogue from 1941, which as far as I can tell is a little bit before McArdle approached Capizio about her ballet flats. And you can see uh, Valentina herself wearing a dress of her own design that's inspired by ballet, as well as these really beautiful lace-up shoes. And Valentina was trained as a dancer, so you do, do see some of this crossover in her work in general. And uh, here is the lovely Brigitte Bardot in 1956 in the film And God Created Woman. And these red flats that she's wearing were commissioned by Bardot from the great French point shoemaker Repetto. And this style in this ad from fall 2013 is still really popular for the company. And they're still making, of course, dancers' shoes as well as a big line of fashion shoes. And I'll include a couple other examples. More recently, Repetto has done some great collaborations with high fashion designers. Um, the shoes on the top there from Karl Lagerfeld had uh, these removable pieces at the ankle, and Lagerfeld himself referred to them as little tutus for the ankle. <laughs> Uh, and then on the bottom there is a great uh, collaboration with Comme des Garçons and Repetto. And you'll see from our next slide that uh, this is not the first time that Ray Kawakubo of Comme des Garçons has been interested in ballet slipper styles. Uh, this is a pair of shoes featured in the Dance and Fashion exhibition uh, that were part of the Spring 2005 Biker Ballerina collection. And this is kind of an interesting hybrid between the typical ballet flat, but bringing in a little bit of the element of the point shoe with that squared toe. But uh, ballet-inspired shoes with square toes are more, uh, more often take the shape of high heels, and that's perhaps because the act of balancing on heels is often thought to be akin to standing on point. 
Um, so this is a fantastic shoe from Alexander McQueen from his Plato's Atlantis collection in spring 2010, uh, combining this kind of architectonic heel made from metal plates uh, with this point shoe inspired uh, design. And I love that the platform here really evokes the idea of the toe box of the point shoe. And that kind of leads us into our fetish section is one of the most fun to research, as you can imagine. Um, the dance historian Sally Baines wrote that, quote, dancing is a metaphor for libidinous sexuality, end quote. And ballet, in particular, has had a close historical link to sex. Uh, during the 19th century, male audience members understood that many ballerinas supplemented their meager incomes through prostitution. And although Baines notes that the notion of ballet as brothel is often exaggerated, many dancers did rely on support from wealthy lover lovers for survival. And so I've included uh, Edgar Degas' famous little dancer aged 14 to underscore that point. Uh, this sculpture depicted a young woman named Marie van Gotham, who at the time of uh, sitting for this sculpture was in the um, Paris Opera School. By age 15, she had been promoted to the corps de ballet, but she was soon thereafter let go because she was often late or just didn't arrive at all, and that was very likely a result of her side job in prostitution. And in fact, she was later arrested for pickpocketing a customer. Um, but even today, a ballerina's discarded shoes, sometimes bearing her autographs, are uh, occasionally sold at ballet gift shops. Um, and as I continued my research, I also found that one of the best-selling true fetish styles of shoes is the ballet boot. And this, of course, is meant to evoke the idea of a woman standing on point but has this long, narrow heel that runs the length of the foot. Uh, so the black boot there is an actual fetish style. You'll see that the ballet boot doesn't necessarily have to be a term uh, that's only devoted to boots. You also see uh, these kind of Mary Jane styles and pumps. Uh, so this is the great Christian Louboutin fetish ballerine pump um, from 2007. And he made this style in collaboration with the uh, filmmaker David Lynch. They did this exhibition called Fetish. And um, women who were dancers at the Parisian cabaret Crazy Horse wore many of these styles for these uh, still photographs and for a short film. And then more recently, uh, David Lynch and Louboutin collaborated again for Louboutin's Rouge Louboutin nail polish. And so if you get a chance, you should check out the full ad for this. There's this great moment where the heel kind of breaks away and becomes the long stem for the nail polish bottle. It's really quite Quite fascinating. And on a similar note, uh, this is a Francesco Russo for Sergio Rossi uh, design that was featured on Corinne Reutfeld's CR magazine, uh, an issue that was devoted to dance. And I especially appreciate this because it's called the Art of Fetishism Point Shoe Sculpture. So they're not really pretending that this is a true shoe. Um, but I also like this style because it goes into this very tapered point. And in a way, it reminded me of those retouched photos of Pavlova from the early 20th century. And then I'll end here with uh, one of my favorite examples. This is Noritaka Tatehana's Lady Point Shoe style. 
And this was a style that was created for Lady Gaga, and she wore this in her video for the song Mary the Night. And she paired these shoes with a latex ballerina ensemble, so really underscoring the idea of fetishism here. Um, and of course, if you wear these shoes, it really forces your feet to be on point. Um, and in addition to that, although Noritaka Tatehana is known for these extreme heelless styles, this is probably one of his most extreme. Um, from tip to toe, these measure 18 inches tall. <clears throat> so in conclusion, as dance historian and former ballerina Judith Benaham theorized, quote, the enduring significance of tutus and toe shoes is that they provided agency for the woman dancer. They signaled her abilities, talents, beauty, dedication, and fame, end quote. Her words may also explain the ballet shoe's long-standing influence on both fashion and fetish styles. In any of its forms, it embodies the powerful allure of the ballerina. Thank you.